Does that go? I can hear myself behind me. All right. Let's just open in prayer. Father, we thank you for a new day. We thank you for a break in the heat. We thank you for the rain. We just thank you for your abundant provision to us. Thank you for bringing all of us here this morning. Uh, Father, what a joy it is to be in your house together. Bless our time together. Uh, draw us closer to you. Grow us in the knowledge of your grace and will. Teach us this morning um, as we look at your word. We ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, if you didn't get a handout, Tyler has them somewhere. I don't know what he did with them. Um, if not, I'm just it's going to be through the slides, so you'll be able to follow along. And then Tyler gave out like a syllabus. Uh, the dates are wrong. He didn't prepare it. I don't know who did. That person will go unnamed. I don't know who that person is. Um, but he's swearing to me he didn't do it. So just a week off. If you can see, we're, we're in the right order, but the dates are wrong. So just ignore the dates, and we'll just proceed in that order. So we're in the third week um, of Holy Scriptures. If you, you get a copy of your Westminster Confession out, again, it's in your Trinity hymnal. It's on page 847. If y'all remember a few weeks ago, Tyler was talking in his sermon about how he was nerding out about this copy of the Westminster Confession that he wanted, and he had to print it all out because it came wrong. Well, I've got it, so... Um, I've got a few. Yeah, well, look at this. Um, so... If anybody is interested in something like this, this is what it looks like, and it has columns, so it has the Westminster Confession, it has the larger catechism and the shorter catechism to go together, so I know in that little gray book, you have to flip to the back, it's hard to line them up, so if anybody's ever interested in something like this, if you want to look at it afterwards, by all means, come up here and look at it. All right, so we're walking through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Why are we doing this? Um... Well, one, it's our doctrinal standards, so it says what we believe as the PCA. Uh, the other reason, a big reason we're doing it is because the church didn't start yesterday. Uh, the church didn't start last week. The church didn't start two years ago. The church didn't start 20 years ago. Um, I mean, depending on how you want to define it, the church either started about 2,000 years ago or it started way back longer than when God called Abram and said he was going to make a, a people out of him. Um, and so we don't need to ignore that fact. We don't need to forget where we came from. We need to learn from those who came before because uh, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel every generation. That would be silly and crazy, and most of us are not near as smart as a lot of those people that have come before. Um, and so they're a gift to us, and what they wrote is a gift to us. Um, so that's why we're looking at it. I want to ask a question. It might be easier to ask the question, but I don't want to put anybody on the spot. You don't have to raise your hands if you don't want to. But how many of you have never actually read the, the Westminster Confession of Faith? All right, look at Mr. Tim being honest. I appreciate that, Mr. Tim. Everybody else just keeping their hand. There you go, Ethan. All right, now we go. All right, so it's like the Republican debate the other night. Everybody's looking around to see who raised their hand. Um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, if you didn't grow up Presbyterian, you probably never heard of the thing. I grew up Baptist. I'd never heard of the thing until I, you know, went to seminary. Um, there's many reasons people don't read it. Um, one, it's difficult to read. Uh, it's, it's written in King James English, you know, so it uses a lot of words and phrases the way we don't talk anymore, so it can be a little bit intimidating. Um, it's not something that most people are just going to sit down and read, all right? But, but the way you need to think about the Westminster, the best way to think about it is it is a tool, okay? It's a 
it's not something that is made to just sit down and read like a book, like, you know, start at chapter one and just read it all the way through. That's not the point of it. It's the, the point of it is, is, you know what, I've got a question about this subject. And then you go to this fancy thing called the table of contents and you see if the Westminster has anything on that, right? It's got a lot. Um, but I encourage you to use it. It is a valuable tool. Um, anytime I'm preparing for anything uh, to teach, you know, I'm, next week in men's Bible study, we're doing Genesis chapter 1 for the third week, and we're going to talk about God or human beings being made in the image of God. And so I always go to the Westminster Confession to see if it has anything in, in there about being made in the image of God, whatever the subject is. Um, it's just a good tool for that. So I encourage you to get in the habit of doing that. Um, all right, so any questions about what we've done before or about the Westminster or anything like that? All right, y'all know how I work, so interrupt me at any time if you got anything. Just shout it out. You don't have to raise your hand. All right, so we're in Scripture again. Bill did the first five paragraphs of Scripture last week. So this week we're going to do paragraphs 6 through 10, so we're going to finish this one. As Bill said, the reason they started with Scripture is because how do you know any of the rest of it? without Scripture, right? You can't, we're going to get to chapter 2 on God and the Trinity. Well, you can't get there without the Bible, right? But then we're going to get to creation. You can't get there without the Bible, right? So without the Bible, we can't get to any of the other doctrines. That's why we start with Scripture. All right, so paragraph 6, and I kind of titled all these, and I kind of stole them from that guy's book. What's his name? I don't remember what his name is. What's his name? Van Dorn. Van Dorn. Um, Van Dixhorn, there we go. All right, so chapter 6, or paragraph 6, uh, really deals with the sufficiency of Scripture. And so I'm going to read all of these so we can just hear them. So paragraph 6 says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed." All right, clear as mud, right? All right, so what is, this, what is this paragraph saying? All right, first it's saying the Bible contains all things necessary for these three things. God's glory, salvation, faith and life. When we say faith and life, we mean how to practice the Christian faith, right? Um, think about things like the Ten Commandments. That would have to do with faith and life. What, what, are, we, what are we to do? What are we to not do? Okay. Um, I, that one scripture passage I think is a good example, so I'm going to read that. 2 Timothy 3.15, it says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. All right, there Paul's talking about the Old Testament. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All right, so the Bible, the sacred writings are able to make you wise. It contains all things necessary for salvation, being the second point is what that verse addresses. And again, he's just talking about the Old Testament there, not even talking about the New Testament. Okay, um, So this, the Scriptures are sufficient for those things. If we want to know how to glorify God, 
If we want to know about our salvation, if we want to know about faith and life, the Scriptures are sufficient for that, all right, is what they're saying. Now, they're going to give some caveats to that and a little nuance on it. So they're going to say the Bible either expressly states these things or they can be deduced from good and necessary consequence, all right? Or instead of that word consequence, you could say inference, a good and necessary inference from the Bible, all right? So what it, what's it saying there? What it's saying there is there's not a proof text for every single thing we believe, okay? You can't say, well, define the Trinity. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, okay? That, it's not there, all right, in that explicit manner, all right? So some, so some examples of this. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, all right? We believe in infant baptism. If you grew up Baptist, you believe in believer's baptism. That we can both do, do ourselves a lot of favor by admitting that neither one of us has a proof text that establishes our position 100%, all right? We are making inferences from things that are being taught in the Scriptures and that are going on in the Scriptures to determine our views on, like I say, baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? We, t we say that the Lord's Supper is the real presence of Christ. That phrase is not found in the Bible, okay? That's an inference we've made from reading the Scriptures, okay? All right, that makes sense? So you can't always just say, well, I got a, I've got a verse that will tell you this explicitly with many of the things we believe. We have to draw inferences from those things, okay? Another one would be like presbytery meetings, right? We're, we're arranged in in a presbytery. Our church is a member of Covenant Presbytery, right? General Assembly meetings, you could say that as well. Where do we get that idea of churches coming together, leaders, elders of churches coming together and making decisions? Well, we get that idea from Acts 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. You get different apostles and different elders from different churches that have been founded at this time. They all come to Jerusalem to discuss a question of doctrine. They, they look at the scriptures, they make a decision that is binding on the churches underneath them, and they go back and they tell those churches what decisions they were made. All right? So we give an inference from that that our system of government is in the Scriptures. Okay? But again, there's not, you can't open up the Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and it says, this is the way church government should be organized. All right? It doesn't say that. So we're drawing inferences. All right? Now, this thing also says, because the Scriptures are sufficient, there is no new specific revelation, revelation and there is no need for it. All right, so if somebody comes to you today and says, the Spirit told me this specifically and this is some new thing, well, there would be red warning lights should be going off, okay? And Galatians 1, 8 through 9, what Paul is saying there is, even if an angel should tell you a different gospel, you should not believe it and that angel is accursed, okay? Because what, what he's saying is, is it's done, Special revelation is done. It is finished. That's why we should be very concerned whenever we hear about people calling themselves prophets or apostles, okay? Because those words are loaded terms. Those terms mean something specific, and special revelation has been cut off, all right? We don't, we're not looking for new chapters of the Bible, all right? That's why when Joseph Smith comes along and says, you know, I've got a whole other Bible out, or a whole other scripture out here, there's big red warning lights, okay? Because... It's cut off. It's done. All right. They also say, even though the Scriptures are sufficient, of course we need the Spirit to bring us understanding. All right? So the Scriptures are sufficient to teach us about salvation, about the glory of God, about faith and life, but the Spirit has to work in us 
and through the Scriptures to teach us these things. All right? If you're reading the Bible without faith, without the Holy Spirit, a lot of it is not going to make any sense to you. Okay? Now, you're reading it with those things, and sometimes it's not going to make any sense to you. We're going to get to that. But, you know, there's all kinds of college professors and all kinds of people you can go to that they study the Bible for a living, and they don't believe a word of it to be true. Okay? And so it's not sufficient for them, for these things, without the Holy Spirit. All right? And then finally, they say here, even though the Scriptures are sufficient, we understand that Christian wisdom must be applied to many areas of our life and practice and worship. And this kind of goes back to the necessary inference thing. But there are lots of things that we just have to apply Christian wisdom to. And I just put some out there. Music style, right? Church architecture, um, the number of officers, you know, how many elders we're going to have, how many deacons we're going to have. Like, we just have to apply wisdom to these things. Again, the wisdom is coming from the Word, but there's nothing set in stone about so much of this stuff. And so we're just looking for wisdom from the Scriptures to govern so many aspects of our lives. All right? All right. Questions about any of that? Statements? Yes, sir, Mr. Kenyon. Or God spoke to me. Or yep. No, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Next, chapter seven talks about the clarity of Scripture. All right. So let me read it. It says, "All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all." Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. All right, well, there we go. Well, that's not exactly clear, but what they're talking about is the clarity of Scripture. Okay, now the first sentence to me, if you've spent any time in the Bible, is like Captain Obvious, okay? All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Thank you. If you've read any of it, that should be pretty clear to you. If you're not willing to admit that statement, then you have a certain level of pride about yourself that we probably need to talk about after this, okay? The Scriptures can be difficult, all right? As we're going to see in the next paragraph, they were written in different languages. They were written in different cultures. They were written a long time ago, all right? They can be difficult, especially for new believers or people that don't spend much time in them, all right? Um, so what they're saying there is all things are not equally clear. And we go back to the things we're drawing good and necessary consequence from, right? Going back to the baptism example. Some of this stuff is not equally clear, okay? But what, it, what is it, it does say, well, let me say this, all right? So the Bible can be difficult and it's not always clear to us. This is my, one of my favorite passages of Scripture where the Scriptures themselves acknowledge this. So this is Peter writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He says, well, I'm going to start in verse 15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, 
as they do the other scriptures. All right, here's Peter writing about Paul, who wrote, you know, 13 books of the New Testament. And Peter says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. All right, so we have an acknowledgement from one of the apostles himself that the other apostle is writing some things that are hard to understand at times. Okay, so I think we're okay saying that. I think the Westminster Divines were okay in telling us that. It's okay if you're taking your Bible, and, and I hope all of you are doing this, if you're at home reading your Bible and you come across a verse or a passage and you say, I, I don't really understand what this is talking about. All right, good. Join the crowd, okay? That's okay. And the Westminster Divines are acknowledging that, all right? Now, but they are going to say that the message of salvation is clear, Okay? It is clear, and I just gave two passages. Tyler's going to preach on one of these this morning, but let's go ahead and read it again, all right? It's, it's very obvious and clear what we need to do to be saved. So he tells us in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's pretty clear, right? How have we been saved? By grace, through faith, not by works, right? You don't, need a, you don't need a seminary degree to figure that out, okay? That's pretty clear, all right? 1 Corinthians 15, in case you're ever wondering, I really want to just tell somebody what the gospel is. How, what is the gospel? How, you know, how, how, is, that, is that clear? Yeah, it's pretty clear. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you were being saved. So, so there we go again. The gospel is saving us. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... Here we go. For I, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. That's pretty clear on what the gospel is. Not a lot of guesswork. What are you saying happened, Paul? Well, there I said it. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. Three days later, He rose again from the grave and he appeared to his apostles. There you go, the gospel, right there. I don't I think that's pretty clear. Um, so while there might be things in the Scriptures that are difficult, the message of salvation is clear to all by taking them up and reading them. Okay? They also acknowledge that the Bible gets easier and clearer the more we read it. Right? It says, All things in Scriptures are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Okay, meaning that there are some who understand it better. Well, how do they understand it better? They spend more time in it. They read it more. They study it more, right? You can get better at it. It can get clearer and clearer and clearer the more time you spend in it, okay? Now, Van Dixhorn has this great, great quote. We should not expect everything revealed about the triune God will be easy for humans to grasp. There you go, all right? Why is some of it not clear? Well, some of it's not clear because we're not God. And the Bible is revealing to us the greatest truths that we could ever know. All right? In men's Bible study, we've just spent two weeks on Genesis chapter 1. We're about to spend a third week on Genesis chapter 1. 
And it's still not abundantly clear, all right? But we're trying, and we're saying this is important for us to try to understand this, to read it, to study it, and it will get clear, okay? That's why we spent all last year or last spring going through the big story of the Bible to help make it clear, right? That's why we're going through the Westminster Confession of Faith to help make it clear when we read it, all right? All right. Paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. All right, so this is talking about the language of Scripture. All right, so Old Testament written in Hebrew, it's... The book of Daniel's got some Aramaic in it. You know, we're not getting too specific in the Westminster Confession, but I didn't want to you know, make a bold statement that it's all written in Hebrew. Some of it's written in Aramaic. The New Testament's written in Greek. All right, raise your hand in here if you can read Hebrew. Okay, raise your hand if you can read Greek. All right, well, that wouldn't be good for us, would it, if they were stayed in the Hebrew and the Greek, all right? Because none of us know those languages. No one speaks those languages anymore. I mean... Greek people speak Greek, but not the Greek the Bible was written in, okay? Um, so, anybody know what language the Bible was mostly in at the time the Westminster Confession was written? Or had been? Latin. Any of y'all speak Latin? All right, so we are fresh out of luck, okay? We are fresh out of luck, all right? So, what they're saying is that the text that is inspired... The part of the Bible that is the inspired Word of God is in Hebrew and Greek because that's the language it was written in. When Paul sat down to, to write, he wrote in Greek. When Moses sat down to write the Pentateuch, he wrote in Hebrew. All right? So that's the inspired Word of God or those original languages. All right? So from that, what they're, what they're saying here is our ministers should have familiarity with these languages. All right? If they're going to study the Word... If they're going to teach us the word, they need to have some familiarity with these languages. Now, they don't need to be, you know, they don't have, need to know them specifically, but they need to be able to use them, all right? And then what they're saying is that when we, we must always refer to the original languages when trying to decide what the text means. If there's a controversy about the text, we're not comparing the NIV versus the ESV, okay? We're not comparing the King James versus the ESV. We're comparing the Greek and the Hebrew, all right, when we're trying to decide what it means. I, I, I tried to look for clear examples of this, and I just ran out of time, but I'm sure lots of you have different translations of the Bible at home. Just, you know, today we're going to read Ephesians 2. Go home, pick up an NIV, an ESV, a King James Version, lay them out beside each other, and read them, and just see. They use different words. Why? Because they're translating, all right? We have to make decisions about what this Greek phrase means, about what this Hebrew phrase means. We have to do the best we can to render it into English. We, we have to acknowledge these things. 
But when there is debate, when there is controversy, when there's a real question, where do we go? We go back to the original languages, okay? Now, the confession is clear, though. The Bible should be translated into all languages so that all people may read it and find knowledge, comfort, wisdom, and hope in its truth, okay? Now, I know lots of you are good history folks, so you know there was a debate about this at the time. Um, that's, I don't think anybody debates this anymore, right? But at the time, that was a big deal. This is why we have it. This is why we, you know, our church does it, or Mission to the World does it, is we send missionaries around the world to places where the Bible hasn't been translated so they can translate the scriptures into the languages of those people so that they can read it, so they can understand it, all right? All right, paragraph 9 talks about interpretation of scripture. Let me read it real quick. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. All right, so again, we're talking about, we acknowledged in paragraph 7 that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. And so what, this, what the confession is saying here in paragraph 9 is that when we have a question about a passage or a verse that we don't really understand, where do we first go to try to figure out what it means? We go to the parts of Scripture that are clear. We go to the parts of Scripture that we feel like we have a really good understanding of to try to interpret it in light of those Scriptures. Make sense? Okay. We don't immediately assume, some people do, I encourage you, I beg of you, I plead of you not to do this. Well, the Scriptures contradict themselves. It says here this, and it says here this. Okay, that's not the answer, all right? Again, think about what we've just said. Written many years ago by many different authors, right, in different languages. We have to work through these things, okay? And so where do, where do we go first? We, scripture interprets Scripture, all right? That's what Tyler says this all the time. We have to read in context, okay? We take a verse. We read it within the passage, we read it within the chapter. We read it within the book. We read it within the entire Bible. That's how we figure out what these verses and these unclear parts mean, is by looking at all of it, okay? Um, I think I said this already. When one passage seems to contradict another, when one passage is confusing, we use other passages to make sense of it all, all right? This is why I've got this word up here, expository. This is why we do expository rather than topical preaching. We're working through big parts of the Bible to help us understand those sections, all right? Expository just means we take a text, we go through it line by line and try to explain it, okay? Topical preaching, the danger there, not that it's always bad, but the danger there is one is the, the pastor who's choosing the topic is making himself the authority. He's deciding what he wants to talk about. He's deciding what he believes, and then he's picking a passage of Scripture to try to support that instead of working his way through the text and talking about what God wants to talk about and trying to explain that to the people. Does that make sense? All right, again, topics are not always bad. There are times when they're necessary. But if you go to a church and all they're doing is an eight-week series on faith or an eight-week series on culture or whatever, there's some danger there. All right? All right, so some examples. I, didn't, I mean, I don't, I'll just explain these to you. 1 Corinthians 15.32 is where Paul says, Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, you could run with that one, couldn't you? Um, he's quoting somebody else. You have to look at the context, okay? 
That's not just a statement you can pluck out and say, well, the Bible says eat and drink for tomorrow I die. No, well, yes, you're right. The Bible does say that. But what is the Bible really saying? Okay. And then these other three passages all have to do with elders. Okay. 1 Timothy 3, Titus, and Acts, they all reference elders, which is the Greek word presbyteros, which is where Presbyterian comes from. But there's another word that they use, and that word is usually translated overseer in your Bibles, but the word, the Greek word is episkopos, bishop, okay? And so we're talking about church government. What's the proper form of church government? Are these the same office? Well, if you just look at one of those passages, you might be a little bit confused by it. But if you start looking at all of them together, it becomes pretty clear what's going on. All right, so I'll just leave you that. You can go home and do a little word study on the elder and overseer and see how it's pretty clear that they're the same office. And Paul just using different terms for the same office. Okay? Um, but again, we're using Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's what that example of. All right, and then finally, authority of Scripture. Let me read paragraph 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking and the Scriptures. All right, so God the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible alone. This is the authority. All right, let me go to my... I wish I would have put this... Second one, the third one, second. So we're sitting here studying the Westminster Confession of Faith. We say the Apostles' Creed. We say the Nicene Creed. All of those are subject to the authority of Scripture. They're subject to be re-examined. They're subject to being wrong if the Scripture says something different. Now, we believe that these things have stood the test of time and show that they are in accord with the Scripture, which is why we continue to use them. But ultimately, Scripture is the authority. And those other things sit under Scripture. They're to help us to interpret it, but they cannot contradict it. Okay? That's why when, as Tyler talked about in here, our, our pastors and our elders and our deacons have to say that they subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. They have to list their exceptions. That's why when one of them, you know, let's say 10 or 15 years after they're ordained, they're reading and studying the Scriptures, and they come to believe that maybe the Westminster got something wrong. They don't agree with the Westminster anymore. They have to let the Presbytery know that. And they have to explain what their reasons are from the Scriptures. Okay? They can't just say, well, I don't like that part anymore, so I don't believe it. No, that's not going to fly. But they can say, through my studying of the Word, through my studying of the Scripture, you know, I think this sentence in the Westminster Confession is inartfully worded or is not necessarily correct or maybe goes beyond the Scriptures and is too far, right? Because what is the ultimate authority? The ultimate authority is the Scriptures. We are led in error when we do not know the Bible. That's what Jesus' words in Matthew 22, 29, He tells the Sadducees, you are wrong because you do not know the Scriptures. That's what He says, okay? All the books we read about theology are subject to the authority of Scripture. So if any of you nerds out there that are reading theological books, the Scriptures come first, Okay? I love Tim Keller. Tim Keller's not the Bible. All right? I don't think he really contradicts the Bible in any way, but he's not the Bible. Okay? Um, we have to always use that. But we use these other resources to help us understand the Scriptures and to make sure we are not misbelieving. Again, going back to that point that they're not always clear, the other resources are helpful to us to help us understand. Okay? 
So again, why in the Westminster Confession do we start with Scripture? Because we have, must have some authority. All right? If we do not have some authority, then Christianity becomes whatever we want it to become, whatever is fashionable at the moment. All right, so let me say this, because we talk about this quite a bit here. The debate in the mainline churches, I say mainline, the, the old school Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal churches, you know, we see this debate, we see these churches split over homosexual marriage or the ordination of women, okay? Um, but we have to understand that's not really what they're splitting about. What they're splitting about is the authority of the Bible. And the homosexual marriage or homosexual ordination issue is just the outworking of that. All right? They're not splitting. Now, some people may just be leaving because they don't like homosexual marriage. But the underlying reality there, the underlying problem there is where do they get their authority? Where do they find their truth? And what they're saying is, is that we don't believe the, we don't believe the Bible on this. We think it's outdated. We think it's wrong. But when they start doing that, they're making themselves the judges of truth. They're putting themselves above the Bible, right? And that's, therein lies the danger. Therein lies the problem, okay? So they're not splitting over the issue of homosexual marriage. They're splitting over the issue of where is authority. And what the Westminster Confession, it starts with chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures to make it very clear, this is where the authority lies. This is where all truth comes from. All right? All right. Any questions? Comments? Snide remarks? Yes, sir, Mr. Larry? The last, the New Testament, Revelation, John wrote Revelation after Mark wrote it around 90 AD. Yeah, we think so. That's right. All right. And so in between that time and the 1500s when they wrote to us, people were questioning what really is true about the system. And is that why they came together and wrote this Westminster, Westminster Confession? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, they came together to write the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, for political reasons, religious reasons, all kinds of stuff, Mr. Larry. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a hard answer. But, you know, they broke from Roman Catholicism in the mid, well, it wasn't Roman Catholicism, just Catholicism at that point, started calling it Roman Catholicism in the, in the mid-1500s. And then for the next hundred years, maybe longer than that, there are just continually these debates about what do we do now? Because the church used to tell us what we believe or what the scriptures say. And now we're trying to figure this out and put some new doctrinal statements together to explain what it is we think we believe. Um, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church has a very different view on the authority of Scripture. I don't have time to get into all that right now, but I'll be glad to talk to you about it afterwards. Um, it's not that they don't believe the Bible is true and an authority, but they believe that the, 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 church, the church gets to interpret the Scriptures and tell the people what it means. Okay? Um, so, but we can, I'll be glad to talk to you about all that. That's fun right there. Um, all right. Let me pray real quick. Father, thank you for this morning. Help us to trust your word. Help us to be men and women who are submissive to it, who love it, who want to read it and study it, who want it to be more clear because it teaches us about you. 
plant your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.